Thanks for listening to the podcast of Hope Church in East Hampton, Connecticut. Our mission is to love God, love people, and serve the world. To find out more about Hope Church, be sure to check out our website at cthope.com. looking out at all of you and I'm feeling like I'm missing something. The mask, it feels like it should be there. Um, Guys, this has been such a beautiful morning. I don't know for you if if you felt a little emotional like I did. I think there's something about just being together with each other that reminds us that we are family, that we are connected and we are brothers and sisters. And for those of you who may be watching online, we hope you still feel that sense of, of, of family, that we are all together and we are in this together. And it's really a great transition into the, um, the message I want to share with you today. So if you're here, you can be seated. Uh, we've been going through a series called Friends here at Hope. And I hope you were able to join last week and hear Tom's message on Paul and Barnabas and really uncovering what it means to have healthy disagreement, which I think is so huge in our culture right now. And I'm going to kind of piggyback off of that a little bit. Um, So this message is called The One with the Big Request. And a few weeks ago on on Facebook, I put this out there for some people, and I'm going to ask you today as well. If you've seen the uh, the show Friends, can you think of a moment in that show where one friend asks another friend for a big favor or a big request? And if you haven't seen the show, think about maybe a time this happened for you in your own life uh, where you asked someone for a huge favor or maybe they asked you and how that felt and why you asked them. Uh, so from the, from the Friends series, you guys gave some great answers. We had the one where, where Chandler goes inside a box for six hours for Joey. There's the time when Monica gets stung by a jellyfish, and Joey steps up. He takes care of her. And uh, we had a couple other ones. There's the, the you know, iconic moment where Ross asks Chandler and Rachel to help him get the couch up the stairs, and he's like, pivot, pivot. And obviously that doesn't go very well. My favorite answer, though, Cheryl Doherty uh, submitted this one, and it's, it's such a perfect one for the message today. Um, she shared a story of when Phoebe uh, is approached by her brother, and he asks her if she will carry, um, if, if she'll be a surrogate for, uh, for him and his wife who are unable to have kids. And what I love about the story about Phoebe is uh, she actually doesn't meet her brother until she's an adult. So she goes most of her life not even realizing she has a brother. Um, and so essentially, he's a stranger to her. But as soon as she finds out she has a brother, she immediately embraces him as, as a brother, and she, she invites him to stay with her, and she spends time with him. And so even though she hasn't known him that long, when he comes to her and asks her to do this huge favor, she's like, yeah, I'm all in, because you're my brother. And, and we find out later just how much it's going to cost Phoebe to do this, because not only does she discover that she's carrying triplets, which is huge, right? Um, she also, when she finally has those babies, she's so attached that it's hard for her to let go. And she doesn't realize how much it's going to cost her, but she says yes to the cost because this is her brother. And I want to talk today about what changes when we live in Christ, when we live in his kingdom, how God wants us to see people not as others, but as brothers. And when we do that, how it truly changes everything and changes the way we live at cost to ourselves. So we're going to be reading today through a passage that maybe some of you have heard of, maybe some of you not. It's Philemon, and this is a letter that Paul is writing to a fellow, um, 
kind of kind of a coworker, if you will. He's it's someone who uh, has a home, has a, a church that meets in his home. So this is someone that Paul is in ministry with. And then the letter is to Philemon, and it's in reference to Philemon's slave, Onesimus. Um, And so we're going to see through the story how Paul treats both Onesimus and Philemon as brothers and how that changes everything and what that means for us today as as Christians and as brothers and sisters. So I'm going to jump right into Philemon, verse 1. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the heart's of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And so Paul wraps up his letter. Um, And I've been reading this passage so many times, but even for for people reading it for the first time, can't you see this theme of brother and sister and son, all these family terms that Paul is using over and over in this message. And I love that this letter... um, Paul is making a very strong request to Philemon, but he's not going through a bunch of theology. He's not going through a bunch of commands, and here's why you're supposed to do this. He's appealing to Philemon on the basis of love and brotherly love. Uh, But I want to start with maybe an obvious question here. In this passage, it's a little vague. Paul is being intentionally vague about uh, what he wants Philemon to do. So we could read this passage and say, well, is Paul or does God support slavery? And this is where I think it is so important for us to be a a church and a people that follow God and think critically and look not just at one scripture in isolation, but but learn to discern the scripture and the themes of scripture as a whole. Um, Because 
when we do that, we can see that, that God's heart is never for, for slavery. Even at the very beginning in Genesis, we see a God who creates man and woman as equals to flourish and, and multiply and to subdue the earth and rule it. And male and female are made in his image. And so we all are image bearers. And so we have this inherent dignity that is imprinted in each of us. And God's design was never that, that someone should be over another person, but we are all equals under Christ. And even as Jesus shares, when he sums up the Old Testament, the law and the prophet, he says, it sums up this way, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And we do not enslave those who are our neighbors. We don't, we don't treat someone like that. If that's not how we would want to be treated. And even even Paul in Galatians 3.28 makes it very clear. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so when we get that larger context, we see the, the liberation theme throughout the Bible. Um, but this is so important because if we're not careful, we can, we can isolate Scripture and we can, we can twist it and we can make a theology that is not in line with God's heart. And in fact, if you know the, the transatlantic slave trade that, that existed for many, many years in America um, was actually supported through Scripture. People, people found ways to, to support this, um, this horrible, horrible sin. And in fact, I read that in the 1800s, um, there were actually British uh, missionaries who, who brought Bibles to, to enslaved people, but they, they gave them an altered version of the Bible, that they actually excluded much of the Old Testament, much of the, anything that had to do with freedom. They, they intentionally left out, for instance, Galatians 3.28, where Paul says there's neither slave nor free. And so again, we just have to be very, very careful and critical as believers that we are not twisting the scripture to fit what we want it to say. Um, and that said... I believe Paul was here was advocating a social justice that he was advocating on behalf of Onesimus, his brother. And I want to look at how he does that with Philemon and why he does that, what prompts him to do this. So the first point I would say that I see in this letter from Paul is that Paul takes the first step in modeling sacrificial love. He takes the first step to modeling sacrificial love. If he's going to ask Philemon to give up something at cost to himself, he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live at cost to myself first. And so you notice in this chapter that he says, okay, we don't know what it might be, but if Onesimus wronged you in any way, charge it to me. I'm going to pay for that um, because this, this matters enough to me that I'm not just going to ask you to change without first changing myself. And the truth is, this is really the, the heart of justice because... Um, Injustice creates a situation where someone else is paying for something against their consent, against their ability to repay. Um, and so justice is costly, and we have to pursue justice, sometimes at cost to ourselves. And there's a lot of debate right now. I think um, social justice or even the word justice might be a trigger word for some. Um, and we, we sometimes wonder, well, where does social justice fit with the gospel? And it is a worthwhile discussion because, because the truth is God's version of justice is not the world's version of justice. And we have to remember that. But at the same time, I do not believe that the gospel is at odds with social justice. And here's why. Because the, the core of the gospel is a God who said, there's a gap between me and you. There's a gap between me and the people that I made that I love. And I am willing to send my son to cover that gap, to pay that debt so that you can be with me. And the gospel is about Jesus who came to die for us. 
It was very costly for him. And, and then about a spirit who would stay with us, even in our weakness, even in our unfaithfulness. Everything about the gospel boils down to a love that was costly for God. But redemption doesn't come without a cost. Freedom and salvation do not come without a cost. But Jesus was willing to pay that with his own life. And this reconciliation we have between us and God at cost to God, uh, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil would call this, um, this vertical reconciliation. Um, but she says that that vertical reconciliation must lead us to a horizontal reconciliation as well. And in her words, she says, quote, the vertical reconciliation we have through Jesus Christ is not the end of the story. We've also been reconciled to each other. That's the horizontal truth of the cross. And to not preach both is to limit the message of the gospel. 1 John 3.16 puts it this way. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. There's that word again. And I think this means, you know, it doesn't just mean that, that we're willing to give up our lives. I'm sure there's people that we can think of right now that we'd say, yes, in a heartbeat, I would give up my life for them because I love them. But I think it also means that we're willing to spend our days, to live our lives, to, to live sacrificially, as Romans 12 says, as living sacrifices. Isaiah 58.10 puts it this way. It says, God is pleased when we, when we spend ourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. It, it costs us something. It costs us something in our daily living. And I don't think we just live at cost to ourselves in our individual relationships. I think this also means we have to look as believers at the systems and structures that exist in our world and in our country or in our, our community, systems and structures that are perpetuating injustice. And this is actually biblical. Uh, if you look through, many of you may be reading through the Old Testament right now and, and um, kind of following along Tom's challenge to read through the Bible this year. I think that's fantastic. I admit I'm a little bogged down. I got stuck in Exodus. Um, but if when, you, when you look through the Old Testament laws, the heart of Old Testament laws is really about protecting the vulnerable. And one, one that I love is Leviticus 25, which talks about the year of Jubilee. So for the Israelites... God knew he didn't want there to be poverty. And in, and he, in fact, God's design is that there shouldn't be, but he knows that we're human and we're broken. And so God put intentional systems in place to protect the vulnerable. And the year of Jubilee was just such a thing. So if an Israelite became destitute, if they could not pay for their daily needs, they could sell themselves or their, a family member or even their property to another Israelite. And that would enable them to not, to not be destitute anymore. Um, but... But God did not want, want this to happen so that, you know, some people would keep getting richer and some people would keep getting poorer. Um, so he designed it that every 50th year, um, this, this horn would blow and people that, were, that had been sold or property that had been sold would be, would be free, would be reverted back to its original owner. And in doing this, God protected, again, the vulnerable from being exploited. And so there was a system in place and so I believe that God is also asking us to look at that in our own lives. In the words of Kelly Nikondeha from her book, Defiant, she says, the return of land and debt relief is good news for the poor. However, it is hard news for those who stand to lose land and labor when the shofar sounds. 
It matters where you stand on the economy on the eve of the 50th 50th year as to how you're going to hear the word of Jubilee. God is asking us to live at cost to ourselves. And Paul is asking Philemon to live at cost to himself. But before he makes this challenge, the second thing I notice in this letter that he writes is that Paul affirms his relationship with Philemon by focusing on the positives. Paul really affirms his brotherhood with Philemon in this way. Um, I, I don't know how you are. When, whenever someone comes to me and says, hey, I need to talk to you about something, um, I, I tend to get defensive. I get a little anxious, maybe sweaty. I do not like confrontation. I do not like conflict. And I do not like people criticizing me. That's just the honest truth. Um, And so I heard the speaker several years ago. I believe it was Brene Brown. And she said, when you're going to have someone give you critical feedback, it's really great to let them give you positive feedback first. And so I've done this with my husband. And it's, it's amazing how it helps to... Um, make me feel seen and heard, and it helps to humanize both people in this situation, right? So when my husband comes to me and says, hey, here's what you're doing really well as a parent, and then here's one thing that I think you could maybe, maybe work on, maybe do better, I don't feel attacked then because I feel like he, he acknowledges the good in me. He sees my heart. He's treating me as, as, a, as a sister, a wife, as family, right? And we feel like we're on the same team. Um, I think that is so critical. And I think this also helps us to... Um, to keep from our arguments turning into another way to dehumanize people. If you're like me, sometimes I'm online, I'm on Facebook maybe, and you get into an argument or a discussion with someone, and what can happen sometimes is we get so heated that we lose sight of the fact that the person we're talking to has, has a story, and they have, they have a heart, and they have, um, you know, especially people that, that we know are fellow believers, they, they love God, they want to follow him, and we need to be able to acknowledge that in other people. And that is what Paul does so beautifully here. He says to Philemon, I always thank God for you. I hear about your love for God's people and your faith in the Lord. He acknowledges Philemon's partnership. He says Philemon has refreshed the hearts of God's people. And so, in fact, what he's really doing is his plea to Philemon is an extension of what Philemon is already doing. In other words, he doesn't say to Philemon, okay, you suck, you're you're a terrible friend, and here's why. He says, here's how I already see you loving people, and here's how I think God wants you to build on that. How can we treat people like brothers in our interactions and even in our disagreements? And this is the third thing I see then in the letter, is that Paul is inviting Philemon into a kingdom process. Paul is inviting Philemon into a kingdom process to shift a culture, to shift a mindset in his heart. And it is a process that Paul is already, has already been on. Um, I, think it's, I think it's really important in, in the areas of justice or really in any area of our lives as believers that we recognize that we're all in process. It's not like one day we wake up and we have arrived at exactly who God wants us to be. Um, in fact, Philippians 1.6 says, you know, we're confident that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That means as long as we're here in this flesh on this earth, we're not going to be perfect or complete yet. God is making us like himself. We are in process. And Dr. Brenda McNeil says this as well, that reconciliation is a journey, not a destination. Reconciliation is a journey, not a destination. And I think that can be frustrating for us at times, but I think it can also be freeing. 
Because it allows us to, one, have humility for ourselves and humility for our brothers, knowing that we're all in process. Um, And I think it gives us grace. It allows us to give grace for the process. Um, This is what Paul does for Philemon. And what I love, too, is if we look at Paul's own life, he was, you know, clearly he was speaking in Galatians. I don't know exactly when all these books that he wrote or letters that he wrote happened. Um, but he clearly, I believe, did not believe in slavery. But this is the first time we're seeing him stand out personally for an individual person. And I really believe that his relationship with Onesimus changed everything. I don't know how Onesimus ended up in this, this situation where he was with Paul in prison. But while he was there, it says he became, Paul says he became a son. And he's talking here about um, Onesimus' conversion. That Onesimus became a follower of Christ while he was talking with Paul. But I think beyond that, there was clearly a relationship that developed between the two of them that caused Paul to somehow move from seeing Onesimus as, as an other or just a random person, a stranger, and embracing him as a brother. Because everything changes when we view people as brothers instead of others. And the fourth thing I would see here, the, the catalyst, I think, I believe that we can tell Paul is owning Onesimus as a brother because he owns Onesimus's suffering as his own. He owns Onesimus' suffering as his own. And we can tell when we have started to treat someone as a brother or sister because we start to own their suffering and their joy as our own as well. What would you do for a brother or sister or for someone who feels like family to you? Recently, my sister had her second baby, a little boy, um, Elijah, and he's like absolutely precious. And when she, before she went into labor, I said, hey, when you go into labor, I would love to take your, your son for you, your older son, and um, watch him for you overnight, however long it takes. I would love to do that. And so she said, okay. Um, and like Phoebe, little did I know what it was going to cost me. Um, so, so I get a call at 1.30 in the morning, um, and you know, like, Nobody, nobody calls me then, so I'm like disoriented. I'm thinking to myself, whoever it is, I'm going to kill them because if they wake up my kids, so help me. Um, and then I saw that it was my brother-in-law, and I said, oh, okay, all right, all right, I know what this is about. So I answered the phone. 2 a.m., they drop off my little six-year-old nephew, and, um, and he stayed. Now, was it convenient for me to wake up at 2 a.m. And, and take in my, my nephew? No, although I'm not trying to compare my... my um, inconvenience with my sisters because I have been in labor and I, yeah, I'm not even, I'm not even going to go there, but, but no, it was not convenient, but I said yes, because it's my sister. She's my sister and he's my nephew and sisterly love says yes at 1.30 in the morning. But my question to us is this, how do we move past just seeing our flesh and blood as family? How do we move beyond the people that that we naturally gravitate towards and and who think like us? How do we move beyond our circles so that we can begin to see people who are are different, who maybe are from different backgrounds, who maybe don't live in the same zip code as we do, who have different beliefs? How do we begin to see those people not as others but as brothers? Because if we're honest, especially in COVID right now, we we have this habit of isolating, this habit of of drawing into our circles. And even, you know, when I I 
and feel strongly about something, my reaction is to find other people who feel the same way that I do and just huddle with those people. And it makes it very easy to create this, this us versus them mentality. This, this, you know, these are my sisters and those are the others. And that is not what God wants for us. So what are the ways that we can move into those relationships? And I think it's really uncomfortable. And honestly, I think that sometimes the first cost is just committing to begin to have difficult conversations, committing to have the uncomfortable conversations and, and breaking out of those circles. Um, I'm experiencing this a little bit uh, in my own life right now. One of the ways I've kind of stepped out of my comfort zone this year is my husband and I have started doing fostering again, and many of you know that. And signing up for foster care is like, it's, um, it's a cost in and of itself right from the beginning because you go to these crazy classes and you hear all these stories about, about these children that really have such difficult lives and you know going into it that it's going to be a cost. But then you get placed with a little child and I have to tell you that I have never had trouble looking at a child, even if, even if they aren't my own flesh and blood, I've never had trouble looking at a child and saying, I'm going to treat you like my daughter. I'm going to treat you like my son, Right? It's easy for me to do that. But what, what I'm realizing is in foster care, there's, there's all these times where maybe you have a child for a few months and then, and then they go back to live with a birth family, to, to live with a birth mother or grandparent. And there's something that's costly when you realize you may have to give up this relationship you have with this little child, right? Um, and God has been pressing in my heart and he's saying, Carrie, are you willing to not just own this child as your own? Are you willing to view their mother as your sister? Are you willing to view their father as your brother? Are you willing to look at the mess of their stories and are you willing to own their suffering and their joy? And are you willing to be excited for them if they are able to parent again? It's going to be costly when we move into places where we, we interact with other people and we start to own their stories as our own. It will cost us something, but I promise you, God says that cost is worth it. And he says, I've lived at cost to myself, and I'm calling you to that as well. So I believe that God wants us to step into his justice as well as a church. And so I would just like to say, first of all, as I look out at this room, as I, as I think of the people that are watching online, I am so grateful to be part of this community. I see a church that, for one is full of foster and adoptive families. There are so many people in this, in this community that have stepped up to love people who are vulnerable, to love children who are needy. I see a group of people who um, make meals for one another, who give generously. In fact, even just this last week, I saw you know, someone from our community giving to someone else's online Facebook charity, and it just warms my heart because I know that this is the kind of people that we are that we are people that love God and seek him and want to live generously. I love that. It brings me so much joy. But I also want to give us a challenge because I believe as a church that God does have us in process and he always wants us to be seeking more and more of what his heart is. And so one area that I see that in, um, I, think, I think we've done really well with certain issues like defending the unborn and, um, and trying to help people in poverty, but I do think we can get stuck sometimes in this area of racial reconciliation. And this passage, this, this idea of slavery, it, it really brings this theme to the forefront for me um, because I realize that, you know, in, in Jubilee, 
Everyone got to go back to their land. Everyone who was destitute got to regain what they used to have. But with slavery, I realized people were freed, but they had nowhere to go. They, they were not given equal footing alongside their brothers and sisters. And ultimately, the slavery that existed in Paul's way did not disappear. And even after the transatlantic slave trade here in America, the effects are still felt. And the reason this subject, I think, it's so tense for us is because it is still unresolved. In referencing Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech, author Jamar Tisby says this, quote, that was August 28, 1963. More than 50 years later, how far has the church come in terms of race relations? The whites only and no Negroes allowed signs have been taken down, but high schools remain segregated. People of color are incarcerated at disproportionately high rates. Black employment remains double that of whites. Sorry, black unemployment remains double that of whites. And most poignantly, most poignantly, churches remain largely segregated. If the 21st century is to be different from the previous four centuries, then the American church must exercise even more creativity and effort to break down racial barriers than it took to erect them in the first place. Guys, this is a huge task, and I say this to you as, as a fellow journey a person on the journey because I know that I am not where I need to be here, but God has been convicting me, um, and, and so many of you have been calling me out and holding me accountable. This task may feel so overwhelming for us, and I realize that. I get that. But I truly believe it starts with owning other people's stories, with, with becoming uncomfortable, with getting comfortable being uncomfortable, and hearing other people's stories without getting defensive and allowing our hearts to be broken by their stories and own their children as ours and their stories as ours. And I want to leave you with this quote by Kelly Nikundeha from her book, Defiant, again. And she talks about this massive scope and how we can, we can really um, make it more tangible and step forward in God's justice. She says this, Truth be told, most of us don't have the imagination for that kind of massive restorative work we get stuck with the numbers too big to calculate the logistics beyond our capacity. That's totally me, by the way. How can we calculate the cost of slavery in America? How can we distribute funds to all the eligible African-American descendants of enslaved people? Would it scare white people to see wealth redistributed and provoke fears about our own economic security? These are real challenges that often shut down our curiosity and imagination when it comes to large-scale reparations for systemic injustices. Like Jubilee, it's too big or too hard. But the women of Exodus demonstrate that neighborliness is where we begin to seed our imagination for true repair in our neighborhoods. When we know each other, when we build relationships and lower our defenses, our stories and struggles are shared. And neighbors know what the other has suffered. So I'm going to challenge you, church, let's continue to walk together with open hands and ask God what he wants to shift in our hearts. What culture shift does he want to create in us? How does he want us to pursue justice at cost to ourselves? To see others as brothers. And as we do that, even though it sounds costly, I truly believe what God says in Philippians 4.19, that our God will meet all of our needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus Christ. God, I thank you so much for who you are, that you are a God who gave up everything, that you are a God who scorned the cost and the cross and said, I am willing to lay down my life to be with each one of these people here, to be with me. Um, and God, I ask that out of that, 
that, that in response to that, God, that you would make us a people who are willing to count the cost of following you, who are willing to go into uncomfortable places, God, into places that are dark and that need light. And I ask, God, that you would help us to, to that you'd break down barriers and help us to see others as brothers and sisters, as only you can do. Amen.